0: So again, chapter 5. Now, uh, two weeks ago, uh, the ice storm of 2023 hit us last week. But two weeks ago, uh, we had uh, the opportunity to start in chapter 5 and got through uh, several verses. And uh, we want to pick up tonight in chapter 5 and verse 16. Chapter 5 and verse 16. And really, um, because we we got a little further than this last time, this is just... Again, to remind us where, we, where we've gotten to and where we're starting tonight. So verse 16 reads, For this reason the Jews were persecuting Jesus because He was doing these things on the Sabbath. But He answered them as if that didn't make them mad enough. He answered them, My Father is working until now, and I myself am working. For this reason, therefore, the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him because he not only was breaking the Sabbath, but also was calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. Now here's what I want to start with this afternoon is that a lot of folks will tell you, well, Jesus never claimed to be God. Well, apparently those folks have never read the New Testament because over and over again, it is obvious from the text we're reading. And I don't want to be, I'm not trying to be hard on anybody. I'm just saying we often have a picture of what God is like without ever really asking Him, what are you like? And He's already revealed it in His Word. So when people say those kind of things, I, you know, I, I swallow hard and uh, say, Lord, here's an opportunity uh, for you to step in and enlighten blind eyes. First of all, there's two things that, that draw us. Now, I want to remind you that we're in this chapter. John has started to really bear in to his purpose. And you say, wait a minute, what, what, what purpose? Well, let's go back again to the end of John's gospel. If you'll turn there to chapter 20, verse 20, or excuse me, verse 30 and 31. Chapter 20 of John, just for a moment. We want to remind ourselves we started this several weeks ago. In fact, last September. That's several weeks ago, isn't it? Uh, September, we started, and I reminded you from the beginning, chapter 20, verse 30, John gives his reason for writing this gospel. Why after three, and and again, he being one of the last, if not the last, uh, apostle to pass from this world into his eternal home, he wrote later. uh, Much of the New Testament, Paul's letters were written prior to the Gospels, and, and especially now, why would there be a reason for another one? Well, He gives us that reason right here in chapter 20, beginning verse 30. Therefore, many other signs Jesus also performed in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, but these have been written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in His name. Okay, so just a reminder of where we're heading. This is a case being laid out, and if there was ever a formal start to that uh, 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 deliberation, to that court case, that, that one, on the one side you have the Christ, and now here you have the religious elite of the day. And so he says in this passage again that, first of all, Uh, They're mad because he's been doing signs, he's been doing wonders, he's worked miracles on the Sabbath. But then, as if it weren't enough in the room, enough tension in the the conversation, he goes on to say, but he answered them, verse 17, my father is working until now and I myself am working. Now, that doesn't seem like a, a really profound statement until you understand the context. They would have believed, even on the Sabbath, Jews would believe that, yes, God rested uh, from the creation of the world, but God didn't fully rest. God didn't stop. In fact, if God stopped on any given Sabbath, the world would just completely dissolve because He holds it together with His hand. That's an active work that He's doing. He's drawing all things to Himself. God is always at work. He never sleeps nor slumbers. He's always active. And they would have accepted that, and He... Affirms that in the first part of his uh, quote in verse 17, My Father is working until now. God's working. You guys are so upset that I did something good, an, an act of kindness, an act of mercy on the Sabbath. But remember, God Himself, our, my Father, is working up until now. He's always working. Now He says the, the fatal flaw for, from their perspective, and I myself am working. Now what that did was not just say, I'm a child of, uh, the son of Abraham like you. We're the people of God. I'm, uh, in a general, broad sense, we are God's sons. Uh, he's our father uniquely as the Jewish race. They would have, they would have accepted that. But what the, the way he says this leaves no doubt. And this is another affirmation that Jesus was clearly telling us he is God. Because that's exactly how his enemies took it. Not his friends touting, oh, he's a wonderful preacher, but more than that, he's the Son of God. He's the Christ, the Messiah, the one that had been prophesied throughout all the Old Testament. That would have been the, the, the parading, the cheerleading of his followers. But that's not who's responding here. It's his sworn enemies. Now what happens? Look with me in verse 18. For this reason, therefore, the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him, Because, again, working on the Sabbath, especially in in the context of this conversation, could have brought about a capital punishment. But high-handed blasphemy, equating yourself to be like God, would have said, not not since Adam himself ate the fruit because he wanted to be like God, Has anyone been so blatantly blasphemous? And therefore, if you thought we were after you before, brother, we're coming after you all guns loaded. And that's exactly... Well, they didn't have guns, did they? But the reality is they came after him all the more. They were hell-bent, and I use that word very carefully, but very specifically, they were hell-bent on destroying the Christ. Jesus himself. So first of all, as we begin this study, we would need to understand those would have been very problematic issues if Jesus wasn't exactly who he said he was. You see, if Jesus isn't the Lord of the Sabbath, then he was as just a man breaking Sabbath law. And if he's not the Son of God, sent from God, Empowered by God, authorized by God, as his emissary into this world, then what he said in verse 17, equating himself to be like God, was was truly blasphemous. So here we have that classic decision. When you hear these arguments and all those that will follow throughout this case built by John in his gospel, you have to decide. Jesus was one of three things. He was either a liar, a lunatic, or Lord. That's what it comes down to. And as such, we can ask ourselves, was He lying? Well, Scripture confirms He wasn't. Was He a lunatic? No. He fulfilled Scripture. He wasn't talking. A lunatic, ultimately, His... his idea, his understanding of the world, his ideas of grandeur, ultimately all fall apart. But his didn't. He accomplished exactly what he'd been sent for and what he intended to do. You and I need to first of all understand that Jesus is exactly who he said. And thus, he, we see first in your notes there, the Son's equality with the Father. Not only were these matters raised against him, but I want to tell you still today, the person and work of Jesus Christ is the pivotal issue of the faith. Nothing is more important than how you and I understand who Jesus Christ is. Please understand me, there's a lot of things going wrong in this world. This week has been an atrocious moment. Well, yes, this week. You can look at any, in any direction as what we're seeing happen and it's one thing after another. Even so, Lord Jesus, come quickly. But let me tell you, none of those issues compare with what you and I believe about the person and work of Jesus Christ. If, If we miss that, if we misrepresent it by, by willful denial of scripture or perhaps just apathetic avoidance of scripture, we do ourselves and our eternity great harm this this afternoon, not only do we see the matters raised as the son's equality with God, the father is is brought to light, but also How does that work? Well, (laughs) scholars have tried to explain the relationship of the Trinity for 2,000 plus years now. And let me share with you, I have not arrived. I have not gone beyond their uh, intelligence or understanding. I'm not going to be able to answer any and every question that you might have tonight. But I do want to affirm that there are three persons in the Trinity you say the trinity doesn't the word trinity doesn't appear no but the truth of the trinity does the explanation the description of what god he is one god revealed in three persons they are same in essence united in purpose they are co-creator co-redeemer co-sustainer everything is in unison there was listen if somebody ever told you and listen i, I read a good well-known baptist theologian southern baptist theologian who said one time in his writing now folks i you know i know everything's on the internet now and you can't do or say anything today but listen when you put it in print even 2 generations ago it's hard to deny but let me share it with you if you believe for some reason that god created man because he was lonely in his universe no God didn't, God was not, God has no need. To say that God created us because he had something missing in his life says he's not self sufficient. It denies so much of what we know clearly from Scripture. So if that's your idea, put that aside graciously, quickly, firmly. Put that aside. God had perfect fellowship within the Trinity. The Father, the Son, and the Spirit were in perfect harmony in eons before there was ever one molecule in all the universe. And He will be forever in perfect unity in Himself. But He does create and call us to Himself for His glory because He alone is worthy of it. None of us, you say, well, that's narcissistic. No, it's not. He's the one worthy of glory. None of us are worthy of glory. If we ask for glory, that's narcissistic. That's selfish. That's navel-gazing, if you will. But the reality is God deserves it. And so much more than you and I could ever think or imagine, He deserves glory. But when we look at this passage, again, read with me now. Not only do these matters rise against Him, but then the mystery of this relationship that He's revealed come to light as well. John, 9, John 5, verse 19. Therefore, Jesus answered and was saying to them, truly, truly. That's a first of 25 times in the book of John that we'll find that double affirmation. So every time he said, John writes or records Jesus as saying truly, truly, it's, an, it's a significant moment to pay, pay attention He says, truly, truly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of Himself unless it is something He sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, these things the Son also does in like manner. Now, again, uh, going on uh, to verse 20, and then we're going to skip down to verse 23 before we stop for a moment. For the Father loves the Son and shows Him all things that He Himself is doing, and the Father will show Him greater works not work, but works, than these, so that you will marvel. Verse 23, so that all will honor the Son, even as they honor the Father. He who does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent Him. Here is this mystery. The Father and the Son, and yes, the Spirit, not, not in focus clearly here by the written text, but He's involved, okay, but the relationship between the Father and the Son is revealed here in the sense that, first of all, verses 19 and 20 tell us that the Father loves the Son. That is, He loves Him not just because He created Him like He created the first Adam. No, the last Adam he has always been. He didn't create Him. He's always been. In fact, one of the junk translations that come has come out is called the New World Translation. If you go home and you find a copy of the New World Translation of, your, of Scripture, please take it quickly, put it in a burn can, and burn it quickly before you go to bed. Because it is not even a translation. It is used by the Jehovah Witnesses. It is not a translation. It's not even a paraphrase. It is junk literature. Worse than one of those Harlequin novels we used to rail against. I mean, goodness gracious. But the reality is that the reason it's junk is in John chapter 1 that we talked about earlier in our study. John 1, one it says that they the New World Translation says that Jesus, or the Word, was a God. We talked about that. It's junk literature because it takes God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. Trinitarian existence from, and says there was a point at which God existed but then Jesus was created. He was the first of all creation and through Him everything else was created. And that's not Bible. God is forever Father, Son, and Spirit. And He loves His Son and because He loves His Son He shows Him, He reveals to Him, He includes Him in everything He's doing. Now there is an equality here, but there's also, because of the respect, the the admiration, the love, the affection, the unity of purpose and and work that they're doing, there is an equality between the Father, Son, and the Spirit. But look with me again, because in verse 23 he says, "...so that all will honor the Son, even as they honor the Father. He who does not honor the Son does not honor the the Father who sent him." Now again, there's a lot more in Scripture that we're going to be able to talk about in the weeks ahead. Not only in John, but how John reveals in revealing Christ all the truth about who He is. There is an excitement here because He not only is God, a very God, equal with the Father and the Spirit, but Jesus was sent. And therefore there is a, not only equality, but there's a submission of of roles. All right? He put put himself willingly. People say, well, God sent him. He had to do it. No, 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 no. That's not this one verse. You can't take a, a whole idea, a whole theology out of one verse. Because Scripture also tells us that he willingly came. He was just as sure that this was the plan from ages past and into ages future as the Father was. He understood his role and he willingly accepted it in our salvation history and in our salvation's provision. So we have to understand not only was the the matter of, of whether you were breaking the Sabbath or you were blaspheming God uh, brought as a as a as a precursor, as a as a opening argument, a volley across the bow, so to speak, but then he goes on to say, Listen, the reason you can believe that I'm not breaking the Sabbath, and that I really am working alongside the Father God is because of who I am. I am the Son of God. I am, as as Moses heard at the burning bush, I am that I am. In fact, the name that we get from that moment forward throughout Scripture, especially throughout the Old Testament, the word Yahweh, that that true name, that, that right name, that holy name of God, meaning is, is associated with that very statement at the burning bush, I am that I am. I, I, I was, It's not that I was at one time, but now I'm a has-been. It's not that I'm going to be because I've just got to earn my rank and, and, and ability and get the experience to be the God of very God. No, no, no. I am, and that is I've never been anything but, and I never will be anything else but God. But the one that we need, the the point that we need to see here is not only is God the Son equal with God the Father, but He's always been pursuing us. Because in that burning bush and in many other narrative scenarios in the Old Testament, we see Jesus Christ pre-incarnate Jehovah of the Old Testament is the Jesus of the New Testament. He's the one who represents the the Trinity in establishing the covenant with Abraham in chapter 12 of Genesis. He's the one that was in the the fiery furnace with the three Hebrew children, that fourth one, who even a pagan said, there is one who looks like the Son of God. Now, listen folks. If, If you think, if you think that Jesus is not a part of what the Father's doing. First of all, He just denied that. He set the record straight. The Father has always been working up until now, and I am working. And oh, by the way, the Father loves me, and everything He's doing, He shows me. But I just want to remind you that I can, look with me, I can do, He says, nothing apart from Him. You see, this is the thing. He is going, not only what they've seen up to this point, but here he's not talking in verse um, in verse twenty. He talks about the, and the Father will show him greater works. That is, the Father is going to show me greater works that I'm to do while I'm here to cause you to marvel. He's going to do everything possible while he's there in public ministry for those next three or three and a half years. He says, I'm going to do all that I'm doing in order that you might marvel, that you might be in shock and awe and understand that I am exactly who I'm telling you I am. God of very God, the one sent by God to represent Him the exact or the express image of God. And oh, by the way, in me all the fullness of the Godhead dwells bodily. New Testament tells us that as well. So there's time and time again, Old Testament, New Testament, the Gospels themselves, this Gospel continues to tell us, folks, the most important truth you and I have to nail down is the person and work of Jesus Christ. And if you get Jesus right, (laughs) everything else is going to fall in place as you continue to walk with Him, even as He's shared in gathering those disciples. Come and see Follow me. We've talked about that in our earlier studies, how he he just told Philip, come and see. He told John and Andrew, come and see. Follow me. The reality tonight is there is the son's equality with the father that we need to nail down in our hearts and minds. One little girl on a Sunday afternoon was kept pestering her dad in the days when, you remember what a Sunday newspaper is? had all kinds of sections, and and he just got, he got really confused about what to do, and he kept looking, and he's trying to read, and suddenly she was, he could see her out of the corner of his eye, she was coming back again. He just, just a little while, just, need, you know what it is, I mean, I'm not, a, I'm not affirming the guy, I'm just saying we've all been there, but we just need a few minutes of peace, of, and quiet to just re- reconnect, re-up re- for the next, you know, little while, and He's moving through the, as quick as he can, trying to, to enjoy his paper. And she's walking up and, he, and all of a sudden the page opens and there's one of those weather maps that shows the whole world. It's like, you know, big jet streams and all that. And it's a pretty, pretty full, you know, full page kind of map. He says, I've got it. He says, Susie, come here. So he very carefully tears down the center of that. Uh, page he looks at that map. He starts pulling it apart, part after part after part. Then he takes them, scoops them up into one little pile. He messes with them to kind of shuffle them around, and he, then he then he takes his handkerchief out of his pocket. It's clean, uh, and <laughs> he puts all those pieces in the handkerchief and he ties it up in a little knot. And he says, "Susie, here's a puzzle. I want you to put it back together." Now she had seen her dad tear lay it on the little little ottoman or table that he had in front of him. And and so she kind of got what he was doing. She went in the other room, and just, I mean, just minutes later, she came back. He said, Susie, did you put that puzzle together? Yes, sir. Now, Susie, I just gave you that a couple of minutes ago. How did you do that? are you sure? She said, yes, daddy. Almost to the point of tears that her daddy wasn't believing her. And so he said, well, did did you tape it like we talked about? Because he meant, told her to take a little scotch tape that you use for your uh, little uh, playroom and, and put it all together. She said, yes, sir, I put it together. <laughs> he said, honey, I, I need to see this. She said, okay, daddy. So she marched in, got her puzzle and brought it back and as she was walking she was holding the map and he was like oh my goodness he saw the map coming closer and she behind it and he said oh my God, what what in the world how Susie how did you do that and she said daddy there was a man on the other side and I figured if I got the man right the whole world would be right <laughs> Now, that's not original to me. I heard it from some other preacher, I'm sure. But I want to tell you, it makes a great point. If you get Jesus right, the whole world comes together in the way it should. Here tonight, look with me again. Not only here in chapter 5 and verses uh, 16 through 20 and then on 23, but let's pick up in 21. For just as the Father raises the dead, the dead bodies is what the word actually means and gives them life, even so the Son also gives life to whom He wishes. For not even the Father judges anyone, but He has given all judgment to the Son. Now look with me again in verse 24, and we'll go on. Truly, truly, that's another of those 25. Truly, truly, I say to you, he who hears my word and believes Him who sent me, believes God, has eternal life, and does not come into judgment but has passed out of death into life. Truly, truly, this third one. I say to you an hour is coming and now is when the dead the dead bodies will hear the voice of the son of God and will and those who hear will live. For just as the father has life in himself even so he gave to the son also to have life in himself. And he gave him authority to execute judgment because He is the Son of Man. Do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming in which all who are in the tombs will hear His voice and will come forth. Those who did the good deeds to a resurrection of life, those who committed the evil deeds to a resurrection of judgment. We're going to stop there. Not only do we see the the Son's equality with the Father, but also the Son's endowment by the father what did God endow him with what did he delegate in the trinity's responsibilities the responsibility of the son is going to be laid out here and there will be more that we'll see that he was given to do but but here he gives a broad sweep of his responsibilities first of all in verse 21 for just as the father raises the dead and gives them life even so the son also gives life to whom he wishes Let me tell you, the Son gives life. He will say in chapter 14 and verse 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And no man comes to the Father but by me. It's almost as if he's tying the whole case together. From this moment when he first really lays it out in front of his religious persecutors to the moment that he's about to go to the cross... His disciples have been hearing him say, I'm the one that gives life. It's in me that you have life. There's no life apart from the Son. Because the Father has granted him to be the one and only one to give life. He goes on, not only in verse 21, but look with me in verse 24. He affirms, truly, truly, I say to you, he who hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life not this is not about a quantity this is a quality issue it's not something that you know well you know and brother sam's good to bring these old one of the most recognized old gospel hymns in the sweet by and by now there's a lot of joy and a lot of promise in that but let me just share with you, eternal life is not something that only begins in the sweet by and by. It is a qualitative difference of life that begins today. It begins the moment that you receive Jesus Christ. And it, let me just share with you a thought. If you had not realized a categorical, qualitative difference in your life the moment you receive Christ, I want to encourage you, nail that down. Know In whom you have believed so that you can be persuaded that he is able to keep that which you've committed unto him against that day. If you're trusting in anything else, let me just share with you, you need to nail that down. It's all in the Son. It's all in him. He's the one that grants life. Also, not only is he the one who grants eternal life, but the Son will raise the dead. Not only is he the one that gives life, but he's gonna raise the dead. That is those who are faithful and faithless. You say, wait a minute. Everybody's gonna be resurrected? Absolutely. Everybody's gonna continue out for eternity? Every single human life that has ever been born is gonna eternally continue. You say, wait a minute. I thought we got eternal life, and those other folks on the other team, they they died. No. They experience death without dying. They experience the horrors of separation from a good and gracious and gospel offering Jesus. But they do not cease to exist. You say, that's awful. How can a good and merciful God allow someone to to suffer for all eternity? then again, we need to nail down what we see in Scripture. Sin is no small thing. My sin and your sin is no small thing. We live in a culture today in God-blessed America where people, we used to say we were a country of laws and no one was above the law. And we still say that And would say it if we taught civics anymore. But the reality is we don't. And the point is, it's not applied equally. Should it be? Should there be justice for all? You know, Superman, you remember? Truth, justice in the American way. It ought to be applied equally. But it's not, sadly. But let me tell you, there's no manipulation of God's law. And the the reality is you and I need to understand you and I are sinners worthy of death and hell for all eternity because we are both by nature congenital defect we received from our father Adam and every father since then passed on through every generation of man and woman you and I are worthy of death but we show it because of our choices. Our nature separates us by and and it's confirmed that we are further condemned by our choices to sin and to rebel against Him. All of us deserve hell. But those who believe in Him, whom the Father has sent, if we turn to Him, if we trust in Him, we have the glorious experience of grace against grace against grace both now in that moment of transformation when we receive Him and every moment out into eternity without end. Now that's exciting stuff. The Bible here, look with me. It says in verse 25, Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and now is when the dead will will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. Now look with me again in verse 28. It says there, Do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming in which all who are in the tombs will hear His voice and will come forth and those who did the good deeds to a resurrection of life. That is, those who have accepted the truth that is Jesus Christ, the person and work of Jesus Christ is our only hope of salvation, then you and I get to have a resurrection, a calling out of the tomb, a, a being fit for eternity that is, again, with Christ, Forever and ever and ever. But those who have not received Christ, who rejected the gospel and the light that they were given, they too will be resurrected. They too will be fitted with bodies fit for eternity. But they will be condemned. Look at me in verse 29 and the last part. Those who committed the evil deeds to a resurrection of judgment, Mm -hmm. eternal punishment. You say, how is that? Because they will feel the wrath of God, separation from Him. You know, and I know we live, I mean, (laughs) this week was another room. We live in a diabolical, devilish world. But the reality is that you and I often hear people say, Well, you know, if I go down, or I go to a place where the devil is, or they'll even say, If I go to hell, I've got lots of friends there. Well, brother, the reality is, well, sister, the reality is, you may have known people on this world who will be in that sufferable, in, excuse me, insufferable place. But it is a place of darkness. It is a place of separation. It is a, part, a place apart from any comfort of God. Do you understand? Friends are a comfort. They're a blessing. That comfort is not a part of the experience. You say, "Well, I just want to know." You're you're starting to describe hell. How how is that place? I've heard that there's burning, but it's a place of darkness too. How is that? Because sulfur, brimstone, at the hottest temperatures, burns without emitting light. God doesn't make mistakes. When you read his word, you say, well, I don't understand that. That is not a lack of God's understanding. That's a lack of your understanding. God knows exactly what he's done and will do and is is doing right now fully beyond any of our comprehension. Not only does the son grant eternal life and not only does the son raise the dead and will raise ultimately the dead for all eternity, but finally the son judges men. Look with me in verse 22. Verse 22. Again, we're, because of this argument, it's, we're a little back and forth, I understand. We're not just walking one verse after another. But it makes a good point here. Chapter 22, for not even... Oh, excuse me, verse 22. For not even the Father judges anyone, but He has given all judgment to the Son. Now look with me in verse 27. And he, and he gave Him, that is the Father gave the Son, authority to execute judgment because He is the Son of Man. Now here's the thing. The Son of Man... Who is also the Son of God is going by the end of this trial, this back and forth where he never got you know in a place where he was talked into a corner, they never outwitted uh, uh, him in any sense they didn 't force his crucifixion. Remember when Jesus got into some real pickles and suddenly he just slipped through the crowds and was gone? Why because it wasn 't his time his work was, his works on earth weren't done but when his work his ultimate work on Calvary was there at the right time he was presented and he was taken and crucified for us but that one, the one who is the son of man, the son of God co-equal, co-redeemer co-sustainer he's the one who died for us and now we're hearing from the moment he Steps really onto the public stage in a in a very um, confrontational manner. We're we're seeing him already say, "Judgment is already been given into my hands. God has given me the responsibility to judge. I'm going to be the one to separate the goat from the sheep." Does that not wow y'all? I mean, let's say it backwards. Wow. I mean. Let, put, Folks, the fact that you and I are going to be judged by the one who gave his life for us, the one who is all-knowing, we have some railroaded lawsuits in this day and age, some missed judgments, right or wrong, good or bad, they're just not justice because they missed that goal. But let me tell you, there is no evidence that is going to undo the judgment of God in our eternal destiny. He who gave His life for us is going to be the one who will separate the goat and the sheep. He will will be the one who says, depart from me. I never knew you. Or "Welcome." Enter into the, I reward thou good and faithful servant. There is a reality that you and I need to understand about this. Not only the son's equality with the father, but also the son's endowment by the father. Finally, again, the son's example from the father. I want you to read with me in verses 30 and, thir- and following. I can do nothing on my own initiative. As I hear, I judge. And my judgment is just, just... Excuse me, because I do not seek my own will, but the will of him who sent me. If I alone testify about myself, my testimony is not true. There is another who testifies of me, and I know that the testimony which he gives about me is true. There's a there's an example that this one who will be our judge gives us, not only here, but throughout his life and ministry. First of all, in verse 30, I can do nothing on my own initiative. As I hear, I judge. And my judgment is just because I do not seek my own will, but the will of him who sent me. The first thing we need to understand is that, again, while he was co-equal and always is and always will be co-equal, Jesus willingly submitted himself under the Father in the completion of salvation's work. He willingly, not forcibly, took on a position of submission, not only to accomplish our salvation in the sense of going to the cross and and paying the debt, but all throughout his life, he lived under the submission of the Father and in the power of the Spirit. He gave us an example of submission, a model of submission. I know I, I, I think I'm talking loud enough that you'll hear me, but I'm going to step over here and hopeful that one of those black markers works. Let me show you. I am so grateful. I'm so grateful for the fact that Jesus Christ died for me. He paid the penalty for my sin. I am no longer under judgment. And when I see him face to face, I have no fear of that moment. Gratitude beyond all comprehension, yes, because Christ died for me. There's nothing now, but all my sin has been removed. Past, present, future. There's never going to be a time when any sin separates me from the Father anymore because of the finished work of Christ. And that's appropriation at age six and a half as a little boy in a small Baptist church in middle Tennessee. I gave my heart and life to Christ. And I am saved because at that moment He justified me. He proclaimed me innocent. Not Not that I don't sin or didn't sin before that point or haven't sinned since then, but all my sin was covered by the payment of the precious shed blood of Jesus Christ. Here's the other part, friends. As a model of submission, you and I have to understand, the Scripture tells us that authentic salvation means not only did Jesus Christ die for me, but also... I died with Him at the cross. That means my life is a continual process of dying to the old man so that the life of Christ that I received that moment lives more and more through me. We talk a lot about what's on the left. We don't talk so much about what's on the right. And the world has come to us and said, all you evangelicals believe, and especially you Southern Baptists, because you're the best or the worst, depending on how you look at it, (laughs) at making a transaction of the gospel. Let me just tell you, I understand there was that moment. I can tell you in my parents' living room, little ranch house, it sounds real fancy, but 1306 Bel Air Drive in Tullahoma, Tennessee, Bel Air was not Bel Air, okay? Just a simple home on a Sunday afternoon, Brother Clay Starr, who was a retired pastor and a family friend in our home church, came over because I'd been asking questions. My parents had been ta- talking with me, and they just wanted to make sure that if there was anything that they didn't, had not explained to me that that Brother Starr could do that. And that retired man, I can still remember just big, big, wa- head of white hair big guy too but he sat down and got on my level and he talked me walked me through the gospel and yes at that moment there was a transaction I gave all that I knew of me as a six and a half year old boy to all I knew about Jesus now I've changed a lot about what I knew about me then and what I understood of where I was at that moment and I've certainly learned a lot more about Jesus but as simple as that there was an exchange a transaction but let me tell you that transaction resulted in a relationship that I had not had before. And I realized that if the Christ had died for me, He was also calling me to a qualitative difference of life that meant this eternal life He'd given me was going to only be seen, only going to be made real. I would appropriated, and yes, I was going to heaven, but my life here was going to change in proportion to my willingness to die with Christ daily. And the reason you and I don't experience in a practical, temporal realm as much of the Christ that we would like, oftentimes is that we love to sing and shout and proclaim that Jesus Christ died for us. We're not willing to take up our cross and sing, I am crucified with Christ. I no longer live. Yet Christ liveth in me. and the life I now live, I live by the faith. Of the Son of God. It's Him in me, or it isn't anything. It's Him in His death taking over all the selfishness and sinfulness that is incumbent in being Mike Crouch and replacing it with the life that is Jesus Christ. He's a model of submission. He says here, I do not... He says, and my judgment is just because I do not seek my own will but the will of Him who sent me. I can judge rightly because I have no personal interest. I am not interested in judging on selfish terms. I I judge according to truth. Unmitigated. Unwavering truth. And therefore, I can judge rightly. But... Not only do we see in his example a model of submission and, and a motive of serving the Lord according to the Father's will. That's, see, my motive is not my will, but His will to be seen. His intent from ages past to then to ages future. My judgment is true because I am without a selfish motivation. Then he says in verse 31 and following. If I alone testify about myself, my testimony is not true. I fail. If it's just me saying this, mm -mm. but just like you Jewish religious elite would tell us, a matter is settled by the presence of two or three witnesses. So here it is. I testify, but let me just tell you, and he's going to talk a lot next week about other witnesses, but the first witness he brings before the court is His Father. Look with me. There is another one, whom another who testifies of me. I know that the testimony which He gives about me is true. You see, the example of the Father is affirmed by the Father. Everything I'm doing through Him, that's what I wanted to do. Everything He's doing, it's of me. Everything He wills is because I willed it first. Everything that He's participating is because I've called Him to do that. His testimony, the Father's testimony, is true. So now you have two testimonies, and He's going to add to that many more in the next passage. But we're going to thank the Lord tonight that as He opens up this public trial that will last the rest of His public ministry, we can know the one in whom we believed, oh, He's worthy. He is worthy of all glory, all praise, and all honor if the Father loves Him, if the Father honors Him, then, oh, friends, no matter what we face in this world, we can love Him. We can honor Him. Let's pray. Father, tonight, we ask Your blessings upon this truth that You would penetrate our hearts, that You would change our wills, that You would encourage our spirits to, like we've said, not only believe that you are the Christ, the one sent from the Father, but Father, to live according to the model you gave us in the Son. Allow us to rejoice just as much with the opportunity to daily die and taking up our cross as we do in the fact that you sent your Son to die for us. Father, may you be blessed by the way we walk out of here and walk through this next week. Ambassadors, of the Lord Jesus Christ. For it's in his name we pray. Amen.